Hello, hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Gary Talks 2 podcast. I am, of course, the Gary, and uh, and I'm talking, so that's where the name came from. And I do love to talk about both our shared history and how those historical issues uh, that existed back then still influence our lives today, but with uh, only with knowledgeable, intelligent, rational people. No crazies, please. Uh, shouldn't have to say that. If you would like to join me on the on the podcast, whatever it's called, and do an interview, stay tuned, and I'll explain how to do that very thing later. So, on this podcast, I will be discussing issues raised in my historical fiction series, Journey, the story of an American family, where volume one begins in 1814 and tells of the events of that time through a really unusual lens for this genre, U.S. Uh, historical fiction. It's seen through the eyes of a young freeborn black man named James Woodman. We'll be looking at how those issues of old still affect our lives every single day, in every single way. In the last episode, we started with a discussion of the notorious black codes, which were enacted for the sole purpose of controlling black populations, both free and enslaved. We'll continue that uh, uh, important but unpleasant discussion and where those codes actually led. In the first episode, we talked about the uh, fact that the black codes have existed as long as America has existed, but we kind of restricted our discussion to those that were in effect um, in what's called the antebellum years leading up to the uh, to the Civil War. And now we're going to touch on, uh, on post-bellum after the Civil War. We also uh, touched on how the... Uh, the ruling classes didn't uh, respect the newfound freedom of the black citizens. So they passed a bunch of vagrancy laws, and we discussed that last episode. These laws were used to control conduct by uh, enacting curfews, uh, demanding employment contracts uh, that were rigidly enforced. Without those things, uh, any man, woman, or child could be arrested and more or less tried, I guess, and um, and forced to work as a convict then instead of a slave. So pretty much the same thing. Those laws eventually morphed into uh, what we know today as Jim Crow. That term has come to mean the method, really, for keeping newly freed black Americans from their birthright, which was freedom, simple freedom and dignity. But here's a little aside. Did you know that the term actually started with a white man who called himself Jim Crow while performing racially derogatory minstrel routines? The man, who was known as Daddy Rice, said he got the name and idea from hearing an old black man sing a song called Jump Jim Crow while visiting Louisville, Kentucky. The, uh, and here I'm waving my fingers in the air as quotes, the separate but equal fallacy and fantasy 
were set in concrete after Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 made hate constitutional after all. So it should be pretty obvious that uh, there's a straight line through from these uh, black codes, as they were called, through the vagrancy laws to Jim Crow, all with the, uh, the backing of the authorities in our supremely unsupreme court. But uh, it's a problem that we, uh, we all have to deal with still today. Again, it's issues raised in the book that we're still dealing with today. I'd like to back up a little bit now. We've talked about uh, before the Civil War and uh, right after, but I'd like to go back and talk about the days leading up to it again and the uh, slave hunters who terrorized black populations. They would kidnap anybody as long as they had the right skin color. didn't matter what their legal status was. and Kidnap them and take them south, sell them into slavery, regardless of their status, as I said. So I'm going to uh, to read a little bit from the book, Volume 1 of Journey, The Story of an American Family. It kind of covers a couple of these slave hunter encounters. I'll set the scene for you now. James, our hero, is been he's been contracted by Francis Scott Key, both a neighbor and somebody he served in the militia with, to take some furniture and one of his uh, house servants to his estate in Terra Rubra from, uh, from Georgetown and bring more back. So he's, he's driving up to Terra Rubra uh, with a wagon full of furniture and this young lady, Abigail, whom he has just met. But he's also smuggling a young teenage runaway slave named Luke, and he's enlisted uh, Abigail in the effort to secrete uh, Luke away and get him out of town because there had been some violence before, and he didn't need to uh, interact with the police about that. So, and again, I'm going to have to apologize ahead of time for some of the language. There's words here that I have never spoken out loud until recently. It was hard enough to write them. It's really hard to read them. So here we go. They continued northwest through the day, never stopping in a town, no matter how small. They stopped for a lunch break in an open area where they could see anyone approaching and had the bread and dried meat that the farmer's wife had kindly provided them. We should be there in another hour or two, I think, Abigail said as the sun was sliding off to the west. She had no idea of distance, only the travel time. Are there any more towns or such along the way? James asked her. No, just some farms and a few houses, mostly scattered about. We shouldn't see anyone. And if we do, it will probably be a neighbor coming or going to the market like the one in Taney Town. They crested one of the low rolling hills and crossed another small stream. James could see larger hills or maybe small mountains out to the west. He wanted to relax and try to enjoy the rest of the trip, but the closer they got to Terra Rubra, the more anxious he was becoming. 
The road curved gently due north soon after crossing the stream, and James could not see very far ahead. When the road straightened again, he was surprised to see three men on horseback coming slowly from the other direction. They stopped when they saw the wagon coming their way. James kept the same pace. Do you know these men? he asked quietly. I do know the one in the middle, Abigail replied, her voice nervous. I ain't never seen those other two. She looked at him, her eyes wide. That one I do know. He's a slave catcher. It was too late to run and too late to try and hide Luke in the wagon. We'll just go on and be about our business. Let me do the talking and stay calm. Hold up there, nigger. Just stop right there, the man known to Abigail said. Who are you and what's your business here? Whose wagon did you steal? He was grinning at them, his voice menacing. We's on our way up to Mr. Key's place at Terra Rubra. Why, I didn't steal no wagon. This here wagon belongs to Mr. Key, and so do this load, James drawled, affecting a speech pattern he had heard many times in his life. Don't I know you, girl? You from around these parts? Yes, sir, I seen you before. My name is Abigail. I be a house servant at Terra Rubra for Miss Polly. One of the other men walked his horse over to the side of the wagon and pulled back the tarpaulin. Just some boxes and some small furniture here, Captain. House stuff, looks like. James knew better than to offer anything else until spoken to. He looked at the ground most of the time, but glanced up at the men to try to see what they were thinking. The big chestnut mare wanted to get moving again and stomped her front feet, shaking her head. James gave a tug on the reins. <clears throat> Hold on there, Annie girl. Hold on. We'll be on our way shortly. He looked at the man that was addressed as captain. Sorry about that, captain, but all Annie there gets to going. She don't want to stop, he said, trying to smile. And just who might you be, boy? You a runaway? Oh, no, sir. I live near the city, near Washington. I just drive from Mr. Key and some of the other white folks from time to time is all. Like I said, Mr. Key done hired us to deliver this load to his place and bring back another. Yeah, you got any proof of that? I can't be taking the word of no nigger. Yes, sir, Captain, I surely do. James reached under the seat and pulled out a small bag. He fished around for a moment, then handed in the letter from Key. The man looked disappointed and grunted under his breath. He took the letter, unfolded it, and looked it over closely. He then looked at Luke. Anything in this letter about that boy? James realized then that the man could not read. Oh, yes, sir, Captain. Sure should be. This here is my nephew, Luke. Mr. Key done hired him as well, you know, to help with the loading and the driving. The three men walked off a few paces and talked about the situation, one of them looking back at Luke. Then they came back and handed James a letter. I think maybe we better take you all down to Fredericktown and see about this. It don't feel right to me, the captain said. Now, Captain, Abigail spoke up. Y'all know me. You see me around with the Key family, and we are here doing work for them right now. They are expecting us this afternoon, and we'll be mighty unhappy if we don't show up. Of course, if you want to have a dispute with Lawyer Key, that's your own business. James met the man's stare for just a moment, then looked away. It wouldn't do to try and stare down a white man, especially this far from home. The three rode a few steps off again and talked. The only thing James could hear was when the youngest one said, Hell, if there ain't no reward, 
What do we want with a wagon full of niggers? Let's just keep searching. The men came back and this time did not block their path. Go on and get then. You best be at Terra Ruber by dark, you hear? We don't like niggers moving around after dark round here. Makes it hard to see him. He had that malevolent grin on again. The other's laughing at his stupid joke. James put the letter back under the seat. Yes, sir, Captain. We'll keep on going. No doubt we'll be there by dark. Thank you, Captain. James slapped the reins on the horse's backsides, and they started to move off slowly. Come on, Andy girl. Time to get back to work. That's it. That's a girl. He gave them one more gentle slap. Do not look back, James hissed under his breath. When they had gone another mile, James stopped the wagon and climbed down. He pretended to check one of the wheels, all the time sneaking looks back the way they had come. There was no sign of the slave hunters. He came back and patted Annie on her rump, looking up at the two of them. You two are about as pale as I've ever seen a black person look, he said, chuckling. Girl, I mean Abigail, he said, bowing slightly. Where'd you learn to bluff like that? Luke looked like he might vomit. His hands were shaking and his voice thin. I thought we was goners, Mr. James. I truly did. He took a deep breath and let it out slowly. Abigail laughed nervously. I don't know what came over me. I ain't never spoke to no white man like that. She looked down at James, smiling. And where'd you ever turn to talk like a slave, anyway? The taste of it was still bitter on his tongue. He shook his head and said, Sometimes it's better to let white folks think the worst, that you aren't educated at all. Did you see that dumb son of a bitch? He couldn't even read the letter. His voice trailed off as he realized that neither of them could read either. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. It's just that most of the white folks I know can read, that's all. It's again the law to teach a slave to read or write where I come from, Luke said quietly, even the Bible. James climbed back up and sighed deeply. I know, Luke, I know. I'll just have to find some way. Unfortunately, change only started to come after a lot of blood was spilled. The history of violence against enslaved people is long and well-documented. But after the Civil War, very soon after, a terrifying new way to control and intimidate black populations came into being. Massacres of innocent black men, women, and children began to draw national attention to what was considered a regional problem, even way back in the days before things like Twitter and email. Two examples uh, come to mind. In Memphis on May 1st, 1866, a year and a few weeks after the end of the Civil War, a crowd of white men, many of them police or masquerading as police, and angry Confederate veterans who could not accept black equality under any conditions, attacked black-owned businesses and homes in the city, indiscriminately shooting any black person they came across. The final toll of the Memphis riots... 46 black and two white people were killed, 75 black people injured, over 100 black persons robbed, five black women raped, 91 homes burned, and every single church and school in the black community was burned to the ground. That's four churches and eight schools. 
were totally destroyed. In New Orleans, just a few weeks later, on July 3rd, another angry white mob of police and pseudo-police, along with more losers from the Civil War who couldn't handle their defeat, set out to deny black citizens the right to peaceably and uh, legally assemble for what was a twice-delayed political convention. First, they were just met with uh, stones and insults. And then, uh, upon reaching the Mechanics Institute Hall where the convention was to be held, they were fired on by the angry crowd. The crowd fired into the building indiscriminately, attempting to kill all within. Black citizens, black Americans who surrendered were immediately gunned down. Random black people across the city were pulled out of houses or businesses and executed then and there. Along with three white delegates to that convention, estimates range as high as 200 black deaths across the city. Now, as with the Birmingham church bombings many years later that killed innocent schoolgirls, these two events galvanized others across the nation into action. Ironically, these riots cemented support for the 14th and 15th Amendments, led to much tougher federal oversight for Reconstruction, much tougher, and even contributed to Johnson's, President Andrew Johnson's, eventual impeachment. Don't forget that the 14th Amendment was highly significant. It shifted the enforcement of civil rights laws away from states and to the federal government for the first time. The 15th Amendment made it illegal to use race as a basis for granting people their right to vote. These riots, in the long run, backfired. Okay, I'm back, and now, as promised, it's time for the political rant. Yay! Love this part. In the last episode, I said I would deal with two kind of dumbass things we do here in the States uh, that I think are way, way past uh, time to change our thinking on. The first is this uh, DOJ arbitrarily deciding whether to act in a way that may interfere in an election. And I'm waving my fingers in the air here. So that's a quote. Even with overwhelming evidence of a crime having been committed. Uh, this is what I found. I'm going to read you this whole memo, so stick with me. This is an October 2000 memo from the Clinton Justice Department. You remember those halcyon golden days of the Clinton administration. Seems so far away now. Anyway, I digress. In 1973, the department concluded that the indictment or criminal prosecution of a sitting president would impermissibly undermine the capacity of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned functions. We have been asked to summarize and review the analysis provided in support of that conclusion and to consider whether any subsequent developments in the law lead us today to reconsider and modify or disavow that determination. We believe that the conclusion reached by the department in 1973 still represents the best interpretation of the Constitution. And what was going on in 1973? Hmm. That's subject for another day. So anyway, 
this part actually is in the Constitution, and for good reason. There have always been a bunch of asinine asshole bomb throwers in this country. I'm really sorry to say that they really are not a recent phenomenon. In fact, they date back to one uh, Patrick Henry, who was a royal pain in the butt in his day and enjoyed arousing the rabble whenever he could. Avoiding election interference is the overarching principle of DOJ policy on voting-related crimes. In place since at least 1980, the policy generally bars prosecutors not only from making any announcement about ongoing investigations close to an election, but also from taking public steps, such as an arrest or a raid, before a vote is finalized because the publicity of such a thing could tip the balance of a close race. And uh, this part is not in the Constitution. It's just uh, from a memo somewhere buried in the DOJ that they hide behind. And all the talking heads on TV nod along and say, well, you know, of course you can't interfere in an election. Holy cow. I mean, we're not all Jim Comey, are we? It would appear that this practice is still in effect, even though, as I said, evidence is overwhelming that serious crimes against the people of the United States were most definitely committed. Not bringing the light of judicial investigation only allows these misdeeds to stay in the dark until an election is decided. Even though committing these crimes should be an obvious disqualifier for anyone holding any office anywhere. I'll say that again. If you commit these crimes against the people of this country, it should be an obvious disqualifier for anyone holding any office anywhere. Dirty Donnie is running again in the vain hope. At least I hope it's a vain hope. There's a lot of hope going by there. He's running at the vain hope that uh, he won't be prosecuted if we get too close to the 2024 election. And you know what? He might just get away with it. Okay, I'm back for the second part of the rant, the Nazi part. I mentioned in the last episode that I believe it is way past time to put away the old bugaboo about using the word Nazi to describe people who obviously are, well, Nazis. They are everywhere in American life. We have proud ones that march in public while hiding their faces like the heroes they are. We have bashful ones that roam the halls of Congress and feign insult when the term is applied to them, even though uh, they really want to do away with elections and overthrow any government that they disagree with by force. Which leads me to this interesting little fact. 7% of Americans say it is legitimate to use force to overthrow the elected government. 7% of Americans say it is legitimate to use force to overthrow the elected government. Eh, 7% ain't much, you say, and you would be right if we were talking about cookies or a pay raise or something like that. We are not. 7% equals around 20 million people who think violence against the government is just fine with them. And being good Americans, you know they are heavily armed. It is, however, very vital that the tag be accurate and not used against the powerless. 
It should and must be reserved for those in our society whose first instinct is hate, those people who preach intolerance and fear of the other, who seek to deny others the rights that they insist on for themselves and destroy anyone who disagrees with them even slightly. By that measure, if you take an honest look around, you will see that there are indeed a lot of Nazis around here. They need to be recognized. They need to be watched. Everybody knows Jerry Seinfeld. He's an American Jewish comedian who poked fun at self-important restaurateurs. If anybody has license to coin the term soup Nazi, he's the man. For some people, though, it's a slippery slope. Once these terms enter into our lexicon, they say, they are hard to dislodge. I believe that this is a risk worth taking. The Nazis in our history books are truly evil characters. And there are plenty of people in today's world who so closely resemble them that we have to be able to use that word. If anyone oversteps the mark by drawing frivolous comparisons to Nazis, as happens, we can call them out and shame them into an apology. But as Jerry reminds us, Sometimes the best approach is to just laugh at the Nazis. So thanks again for joining me uh, today here at uh, Gary Talks 2. I would truly love to hear from each and every one of you, or all two of you, however many people are out there. So if you have a comment, or a suggestion, or a good recipe to share, or if you'd like to do an interview segment, then uh, please just drop me a line at thepodcast at gvbrights.com. That's thepodcast at gvbrights.com. Or leave a comment on the website, which is www.gvbrights.com. There it is again. And on that website, you can see reviews, of the two volumes of the journey series so far and other writing I've done as well as check out the mentoring I do for uh, kids in Malawi in East Africa every uh, Tuesday. And maybe, uh, maybe you'll be inspired to join me in this effort working with a volunteer group there. They're uh, good people and they give you a lot of support. So anyway, uh, in the next episode, we'll deal with other issues raised in my series journey. This time we'll deal with the uh, depredations of the slave hunters and the courage of the conductors on the Underground Railroad and that, that, uh, that hatred that motivated the slave hunters still exists in this world in 2023, believe it or not. And then maybe we'll have some fun with, uh, I think, Florida's newest drag queen and performer, Rhonda Santos. Now, come on. You got to admit that would be a great name for somebody. So I hope about 40 people down there in Florida, come on, Florida, get with it. Rhonda Santos with like a big giant red wig and in uh, a nasally accent. Yeah, that'd be great. So anyway, thanks again. Oh yeah. I forgot to mention, I've been allowed back on Twitter, uh, Miss Elon has forgiven me for now. So uh, I am at Reader Reclusive. 
both uh, there and at uh, Instagram at Reader Reclusive and on Facebook at Gary Loves to Write. So uh, join me someplace and let's say hi. Okay, that's it for now. Adios, amigos.